Blog Talk Radio. guest is Sunbury Press author Scott Zuckerman, a physician and acupuncturist who, for the purposes of writing the book we'll be discussing, turned into an investigative journalist. The book is titled Dreams of My Comrades, the story of a World War II vet, machinist's mate, first-class Murray Jacobs, although that's not his real name. Thanks for taking the time with us, Scott. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit uh, about your book. Well, my book is the story of Murray. Again, as you mentioned, not his real name, Murray's life. Um, he never told the details of his wartime experiences to another living soul, including any members of his family, until he agreed to allow me to interview him. And he did that under the strict caveat that I could not publish the book until after his death. Um, I met him when he was, well, I met him when he was about 91, and we started our interviews when he was about 95, and he has since uh, passed away. And he also had the caveat that I could not use his real name. Um, The book, in addition to being his life story and the story of his World War II experiences, the book is really the story of our relationship that he and I developed and our journey in search of the truth about what happened to him 70 years ago in the Pacific Theater of Operations. For a 95-year-old man, uh, he, he seemed to be extremely lucid. He was entirely lucid. Certainly there were gaps in his memory, as I would expect, um, which is why I had to become a, a bit of an investigative reporter along the way. And why getting at the truth um, was challenging, but um, he, he was entirely lucid, and his stories that he told were entirely consistent throughout the course of our interviews. And I was actually fortunate. This was my first endeavor in writing a book, and he's just a wonderful storyteller. Our, our conversations and our dialogues, I mean, I don't want to minimize my effort in writing the book, but... Our dialogue just wrote itself. There were many times I would come home and listen to the recordings of our discussions, and I I realized that I had really a gold mine because he was such a wonderful, I'll use the word character, he was just a wonderful character and and a a pleasure to interview. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons I developed such a close personal relationship with him along the way. Well, you may have uh, you may have had it easy because you recorded those, and so the dialogue perhaps was was easy to put down. But uh, the rest of it was a lot of hard work. You did a lot more than a bit of investigative journalism. Well, um, you know, we live in a time, the modern times, where getting at the truth can be challenging, and that's probably always been the case. And the further we go back in time the more vague the records are and the more open they are to alterations either by accident or intentional alterations of historical records, 
um, it, it becomes more cloudy, and, and getting at the real truth of what happened it becomes more challenging. And I certainly, that was very eye-opening to me during the course of writing the book. Well, you did a lot of uh, psychological profiling as well, as far as I'm concerned, and and uh, uh, I was I was curious to find. And, and, well, let me ask you this first before I go into that. Uh, are, are do you have any? You know, there, this this book has some has a, uh, a couple of really big twists in it. About halfway through, I all of a sudden I found myself uh, uh, sitting up and. And it became a real page turner after that because of. Uh, uh, I guess what I'm asking you is, do, do, do you want? Should we avoid? Because there could be spoilers we could talk about here. Well, I try. I, that's a great question. I try not to be disingenuous in talking about the, the twists and turns in the book, but I also try not to give away um, the those turns because I think that does. I, my, my goal in writing the book became taking the reader on my journey. Everything that happened, I wrote down. Everything that you read, everything that you read, exactly as it happened to me. So the reader really does come on the journey that I was taken on in search of the truth. Um, so I do try in discussing the book with those who haven't read it, um, I try to avoid giving away too much of those plot details, if you will. Yeah, I'm glad I asked. I'll, I'll dance a little bit lightly on on that one because uh, <laughs> it's, it's because tricky. there it, it becomes it becomes it actually becomes a big mystery, and that's where your investigative reporting really kicked in, and and you uh, you did a lot of work. You traveled to to talk to people. You you uh, you had all kinds of records to go through and. You were very fortunate to find those old letters uh, 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 that you found. Uh, I'm I'm uh, curious about the talking about the psychological profiling again. Uh, some of the people, many, well, almost most of the World War II vets that you talked to in, uh, to to work on this book seemed to have very clear memories of everything that happened. Uh, uh Murray's memories became uh, a little bit questionable, and I'm wondering how much that has to do with the fact that everyone uh, labeled him as a narcissist. Well, that's a good question. And the degree to which his narcissism, he, Murray was a narcissist, the degree to which his narcissism led to the um, aberrations in his memory, I, I don't know. I'll never know. Uh, there are, there, you know. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say there are some questions that linger at the end of this book. There are things that I wish I could have the answers to that I don't have the answers to. That, and that's the reality of life, I think. That's one of the great lessons I've learned along the way about history is that any hist history that we take, any history that we learn is shaded. We're watching a documentary and we think it's just factual, but it still is shaded by the editing process and by the uh, predilections of the documentarian. Any historical book one would read 
Um, a Stephen Ambrose book about D-Day, about Band of Brothers. The, these are also shaded by the memories of the veterans and the predilections of the author. So um, I think that's a natural process. The, the history I obtained from all the other World War II veterans, as best as I could verify it, it was true. But who knows? You know, there was a lot of things that were consistent from one interviewee to another, and there were other things that I don't know that I could verify or I couldn't verify because I wasn't there, um, which is I something wasn't I there. come back to. <laughs> right. I come back to that frequently throughout the book. I wasn't there, so who am I to say? Right? Yeah. I mean, anybody could say anything. There's people who stand up in the middle of a room and tell Neil Armstrong that he was, didn't walk on the moon. That it was a hoax, you know. So I, I think those guys have a lot of nerve to do that. But in the same way as there are Holocaust deniers walking around, and, and, and you know, people could say anything. So who am I to say? But that being said, there's facts, and then there's fiction. So getting to the bottom of that is the, really the challenge of an investigative reporter. You know, to verify. I don't know if your, I answered your, your question. Well, to verify your deal about uh, uh, objectivity, uh, uh, back in the 1980s, Geraldo uh, uh, Rivera, uh, and this was back when Geraldo Rivera was still just a straight news guy, and he had, and he was a pretty good right. news guy at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he was giving a speech to the Columbia Dupont Awards, and he was talking about objectivity, and he said, you know. Uh, uh, people say that that reporters uh, or that the news can't be objective. He said, "Well, you know, think about this." He said, "When when somebody uh, when somebody has to decide first of all that there's a story or not, so they have to decide, and a lot of times they decide that based upon their own biases. Is this a story or isn't mm-hmm. it?" Then somebody goes out and uh, asks the questions. And which questions do they ask? Which questions do they leave out? That has a lot to do with personal biases. And then somebody mm-hmm. has to write it under the same circumstances. Uh, and uh, so so uh, objective, objectivity is actually in, in question through the entire process. You, you, you can just, you have to try. You have to have a commitment toward it and and try, but but uh, everyone still does have their own biases. It's impossible to to be without that. Um, I try to be as objective as possible, but and I I I allow the reader into my own personal process during the course of the book, um, and and I admit to my failings at. I look several places along the way of being objective. Um, I'm trying to be in touch with that. There's probably times when I'm not in touch with that. Really, one of the fascinating aspects of this whole uh, project for me has been the fact that there there are questions that linger at the end of this story, and I don't know the answer. I know what I think might be the answer, and it's been fascinating for me to have the the, the people I know read the book and then get their feedback. What do you think? And, and there are people who feel strongly that the answer is X, and there are other people who feel just as vehemently that the answer is Y. And it's, been, it's really been a fascinating 
part of the journey for me to to get those answers and uh, and find the you know people on both sides of that coin, people who think they're well, and you gave us point to evidence. You gave us an X and yes. a Y, kind of like the French lieutenant's mm-hmm. woman. Uh, <laughs> right. That gave us a couple of uh, solutions, and you you gave us a couple of solutions, and it does end up a you know you're just not quite sure, but uh, you you uh, I at least I had I had a, a definite feeling that you know hey there's something there. Let's talk about what mm-hmm. was there. Let's talk about what this this man seventy years after the fact, some of the things that he told you, some of the horrific things. Yes, well, during the course of our interviews, Murray confessed to atrocities that he witnessed and participated in that, quite frankly, I had never heard related by any World War II veteran. I've, I haven't read every book or heard every interview from World War II veteran, of course, but I've read a lot. And after interviewing Murray, I, I went back and did more research about these things and some of the things that he confessed to me, I couldn't find ever associated with World War II. With subsequent conflicts like Vietnam, yes, most definitely I've, I've seen and heard those things talked about, but never in World War II. And then as time went on and I investigated those, the, well, the veracity of those maybe came into question during the course of the process. So then, as you asked me before about the psychology, why would somebody, um, why would somebody 70 years after the fact not portray themselves as a hero? Murray was the opposite. Uh, like people who have read Laura Hillenbrand's fantastic book, Unbroken, Murray is no Louis Zamperini, <laughs> that's for sure. And he never portrayed himself that way. He portrayed himself perhaps as the opposite of Louis Zamperini. And why would somebody concoct these things? And in the end, did he partake in those things or participate in those things? Did he witness those things? Maybe, maybe not. Um, But the question still lingers, what effect did that have on him? Why did he think of those things if he didn't participate in them? And if he did participate in them, what what was the effect that this had on the rest of his life? What would his life have been like? Um, had he never served in the military? And, of course, we can never know the answer to that. Uh, Well, that could be worthy of of some more. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, that could be worthy of some more investigative journalism because uh, I was uh, particularly, uh, when we found out about the Army uh, messing with information in the records, which seemed to be... uh, uh, factual, then you again you start wondering about uh, cover-ups, and so you know somebody could almost uh, probably do a whole book on on uh, trying to well at least try and do a book on finding out how much of that uh, was real if it was endemic how much was covered up. Right. Well, we know we certainly know of many instances, and I yeah you know I mentioned the the instance of the, the USS Indianapolis. And anybody who doesn't know the full story of the USS Indianapolis, I, I would encourage to, to look into that. To me, it's one of the real egregious events of, of military ineptitude and 
real deception of the general public uh, in, in in history that I'm aware of. And uh, just piss poor planning. We, we, well, everything. I mean, it was a, a mess from the beginning, but um, and through the ending, and then the cover up that was involved in it. But that you know, we know of many instances like that, and I believe that I found I found pretty good evidence of at least certain things in Murray's records that were not accidentally um, not accidentally omitted from his records or deleted or changed in his records. These were these were purposeful acts of I don't want to use the word sabotage of but but certainly changing the course of history. But on the part of the military. Right, exactly. Purposeful. So we we know that that's the case. Um, I there is a part of me that you know my background is that I'm a physician. So being a physician, one is by by definition an investigative reporter within my field. But I'm not a journalist. So there is a part of me that would have liked to somehow get access to higher levels of military intelligence, if you will, things that were perhaps classified documents back in 1945, but now have been declassified it because of the Freedom of Information Act. And, you know, I just don't have, I don't have a way to do that. I don't know the knowledge or the experience of how to do that. And uh, quite honestly, I think I've wrapped up my story probably as well as I could. And I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm actually working on the next book and the book after that. So I've kind of moved on. But there is a thought in my mind, hmm, I wonder if, if somebody with more journalistic experience than me could have taken this to another level, you know, but I haven't, I just have not done that. Well, the, the, uh, in, in this case, uh, there, there, there were no, there was no such talk of these kinds of atrocities in the European theater. It, uh, it, it seemed to, to be all on the Pacific side. And, uh, do you suppose that if the Germans had been as, as barbaric and cruel as the Japanese, that we would have heard more about American troops uh, responding in kind? You know, I, I think uh, there was a racism against the Japanese people that didn't, against, didn't exist against the German people. And it's amazing to me. We didn't round up German-Americans and put them in internment camps. Um, we rounded up Japanese Americans, people who were citizens, people who were born here, who were living in California, citizens of the United States. We rounded them up and put them in internment camps. So I think, and 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 by the way, the racism against Japanese goes back further. Before that, as when Japanese immigration to the United States reached a, a greater height in the early 1900s, one need just go to Ellis Island and the museum there, which is a fascinating place to go. Um, and see the anti-Japanese rhetoric that's on display there from those periods of time, 1900, 1910. Uh, there was this lingering racism against the Japanese. So I, I think going into the war, we looked at the Japanese as subhuman, and we didn't feel that way about the Germans. You know, in terms of the direct answer to your question, Myself, as you know, quite honestly, as a Jewish person, a person of Jewish heritage, I would say the Germans were just as barbaric, perhaps not to our prisoners of war, 
perhaps not to our prisoners of war um, as, as the Japanese, but in other ways, much more barbaric. The, the Japanese were, did not have concentration camps littered throughout the countryside, um, you know, stuffing corpses into ovens to uh, eliminate the evidence of their atrocities. So, so I think it really was more of a perception back then of the Germans as being, well, they're white and they're part of our race, and the Japanese were not white and not part of our race. I think that racism was there. And what was interesting to me, and, and I don't have an answer for this question, is that after the war, our prosecution of the Germans for their war atrocities, and I touch upon this in the book, our prosecution of the Germans was much more aggressive than our prosecution of the Japanese for their war atrocities. So I don't have an explanation for that, why that racism suddenly turned where, where the Japanese became our greater allies than the Germans. I don't know if it was the communist effect on, 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 you know, on East Germany. I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. But well, I have, a, I anyway. have, a, I have, a, I have a, uh, an idea, perhaps, uh, that, that we didn't find we didn't find uh, concentration camps behind Japanese lines with with people being burned in ovens. I think you know the Germans all of a sudden just stepped up and in the first place on that. But I do I want to talk oh, about perhaps. Japan's culture. Uh, you know culturally, uh, the Japanese saw everyone else as subhuman. Not That's only the people cool. around them in the in China and Korea, which they had already gone into and were were treating very badly, but they they considered themselves, uh, you know, the superior race, and I think that had a lot to do with how they uh, rationalized treating everyone as badly as they did. Yes, I agree with that. The uh, I, I and I certainly would not paint the Japanese as. I mean, I would paint the Japanese American citizens who were put in internment camps as innocent victims, but the Japanese who were in Japan participating in the war and what they did in China, the rape of Nanking and all the other major cities in China um, of harmless, defenseless people uh, was egregious. So I agree mm-hmm. with that 100%, that the Japanese had their own image of their own superior race. Uh, absolutely. Well, you spent a lot of years, actually. Did, did, didn't you spend almost nine years uh, with Murray? Well, the interview process probably lasted a couple of years. I knew him for, for a period of time before I decided to write his story. We, we at first developed a very cordial relationship um, just uh, to tease the potential reader and the listener to this show. Um, I was I'm an acupuncturist. I do home visits, and Murray was living with a patient of mine. He actually moved in a couple of years after I started treating his daughter. And when he became unable to live on his own, um, his daughter, Catherine, took him into her home, and that's how I met him. And he was very cantankerous and very narcissistic, and I, I, I am familiar with narcissists, and I'm comfortable around them, but that doesn't mean I really appreciate being around them. Uh, so I had a very cordial, pleasant relationship with him, but nothing deeper than that. And then we started talking about his war experiences, and I, I, we just de- developed a very close bond. And, I, you know, people have asked me, why do you think he chose you? Why did he choose you to tell his story to? And 
I, I don't have a very good answer for that. I think he recognized that I was not judging him. I tried very hard and diligently to be non-judgmental of anything he told me right up till the end. And I think also that I was able to navigate his narcissism and his various behaviors better than the average bear. So um, I think that's why we were able to develop that bond. Uh, well, I saw I, I, I saw I saw two Murrays in this story. I saw the old man who loathed the earlier Murray back when he mm-hmm. was first married and and went and went into the service. Uh, he did not like. Uh, that Murray, he, he, he considered himself to be, I think, uh, a, a total boor. And yet the, the letters that he sent to his wife, if uh, no one would have ever guessed from reading those that he wasn't just the greatest guy in the world. Right. I had the benefit of hindsight in looking at that and some of the psychological analysis I do of those letters and comparing them to letters that my own father had written me. Um, to me, that's some very revealing content. Uh, yes, I agree that there were there were two Murrays, and people have told me that you know I'm reading your book and it's a nice book. I really like it, but I really don't like this guy you're writing about. And I understand that he, a lot of his behavior is not likable at all. But then you're faced with this old man who I believe was genuinely reticent. When he said, I hated that man, I hate the yeah. fact that I did these things, that I, that I, cheated. I believe he was honest and earnest in that assessment of himself. So I think that also drew me to him. I felt, I felt sorry for him in, in the sense that I think he's sitting in a chair talking to me at the age of 95, at the age of 96, and looking back on his life and saying, why did I do these things? Why couldn't I have been a better man? And... You know, quite honestly, I wouldn't want to be that guy. I, I'm hoping when I'm 95, I can look back and say, um, aside from the fact that I'd like to see the Jets win another Super Bowl by then, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but I'd like to look back and say that was a life well lived. Well, and he, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, uh, sophisticated enough uh, yet to know why he had done the things he had done or had been the way he was. Right. I don't think he ever really knew. I think it goes back to his own relationship with his father. Um, his, his father was unloving toward him, and his own father was obviously, well, not obviously, but his own father was narcissistic, in my opinion. I never met him, but from what I could understand, he was obviously narcissistic. And that led to Murray's lack of self-esteem, and it was his lack of self-esteem that led him to do the things he did and to behave the way he behaved. Um which it's challenging. It's very difficult growing up the child of a narcissist. I can speak to that to that firsthand, most definitely. Well, you gave us some really good history about the Marshall Islands and Okinawa and all of that. You filled in you filled in some uh, some nice details, and I learned a few things I didn't know. Thank you. I'm, I, I did my best. I tried to present factual data, and um, I uncovered a lot of little biographies of interesting people that Murray uh, came in contact with, even a a quick brush by. Um, For example, a gentleman who became the Register of Copyrights of the United States was somebody who reviewed Murray's records, and I found that to be a fascinating 
little tidbit of history. So I'm, I'm fascinated by history and all of these little occurrences. So I try to include as much of that in as much detail as I could within the, the context of the book. Was it was it the Secretary of Navy that came by one day too? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and and Frank Knox who was very. It was a very quick in- encounter. But Frank Knox was the Secretary of the Navy, and he inspected Murray's uh, battalion. And I'd never heard of Frank Knox, and I looked him up. And you know, this was a man who was vehemently opposed to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's um, economic policies even though he had been previously, Frank Knox was a supporter of Teddy Roosevelt. And then when war broke out and many people considered FDR to be a warmonger at the time, and you know, history doesn't remember that, that our country was very divided before Pearl Harbor. And many, many people did not want us involved in the war. Um, But Frank Knox came out and said, no, we need to be involved in the war. So even though he didn't agree with FDR on some of his policies, he agreed with him on others. And wouldn't it be nice to hear a politician say that today instead of everything is right down the party line? Um, could you imagine a Republican now saying something positive about a Democrat or a Democrat saying something positive about a Republican? So, well, we won't so get into all of that frankly. because we won't get into all that because we've already discussed narcissism. So we'll just leave that one alone. <laughs> well, well put. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, I've been talking with Dr. Scott Zuckerman about his book, Dreams of My Comrades. Thanks for sharing with us, Scott. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. Okay. You can find this book at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, other booksellers. I highly recommend it for its historical content, its humor, and its deep insights, and for its unexpected twists and turns. This has been the author's interview from Sunbury Press. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.